can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. I feel like uh, in RUF, we've been going through 1 Peter, and we've been talking a lot about suffering. And so it's funny that Wilson would give me this verse about suffering. So um, it's, it's a good one, though, and it's good to dwell on the hope of Christ in the midst of suffering. So let's read, let's get this passage before us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, we're going to go to verse 15. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, life, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may this word go out from here. Um, may we suffer well so that as the life of Jesus is manifested in us, more and more people would see your grace and offer thanksgiving to you. We pray that that would be true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4 is, as I was studying, I, I was astounded at how beautiful the chapter is. Um, I mean, you just look at the beginning, verse 4. We have this ministry. We don't lose heart. That's encouraging. Verse 2, as a preacher, it's, it's precious. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We just preach the word straight up. Nothing fancy. There it is. Or verse 5, it's the goal for my whole life that I would proclaim. And um, you all in a different context would proclaim not yourselves, but Jesus is Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. I love verse 6. We have verse 6, irresistible grace, God shining light in our hearts, conversion, a divine and supernatural light, people seeing the gospel of the glory of God. And skip down to verse 16. Verse 16 is great. Our outer nature wasting away inwardly, renewed day by day, eternal weight of glory. Or verse 7, jars of clay. It's a good band, uh, but it's also a great verse. Uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, the cadence here, afflicted, not crushed. And it goes on, beautiful. But verse 11, I don't like. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And I should clarify, I like it because it's in the Bible. And uh, I know it's good, and all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable, so I like it. Uh, but I don't like it, if you get what I mean. Wilson isn't going to spend three weeks here, you know. Um, I don't jump out of my skin saying this. This is great. Given over to death. That's wonderful. 
And so I start to think, you know, maybe, maybe this verse isn't about me. You start to look at how is Paul talking. Um, maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's Paul and his companions. Well, tough for them. Bummer to Paul. Everybody else gets life. A few apostles suffer and such. Um, everybody else, good news, life, joy, no problems. And it's true that there's something unique about Paul in this situation. He was an apostle, that's unique, and he was the leader of the Christian church. He wasn't the pope, but he planted churches. He traveled around the Mediterranean world, and he was speaking in all these places and synagogues, and he'd stand before rulers and kings, and he's writing letters, and he's managing all these different affairs and getting dragged out by mobs. I mean, he's got a big target on his back because he's hugely influential and he's making waves all throughout the Roman Empire. He was the man. And with more influence for Paul came more attacks. Not many of us are getting shipwrecked and stoned and beaten with rods and driven out of town by an angry mob and flogged with 40 lashes minus one and being exposed to all the elements and going hungry and thirsty and then having a whole bunch of other churches to watch over at the same time. That's Paul. He was handed over to death in a way that most of the people in his churches were not. I mean, even the Corinthians. Uh, most of the Corinthians weren't shipwrecked, weren't stoned, weren't flogged, weren't driven out of town. So there's something unique about Paul, but not entirely. And here's where we're going to make the most hay out of this passage. We can't just crawl out from verse 11 sort of unscathed. Yes, I don't get handed over to death on a daily basis. I can breathe a sigh of relief. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I thought God was going to tell me something I didn't want to hear for a second. Uh, but, and it was just for somebody else. But, but hear this. In 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Don't pretend that you're persecuted like somebody in northern Africa um, might be in a certain context. But, but it's true. All will be per persecuted. Acts 14.22, Paul told the Christians in Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And those words are to you too. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So how do I get into the kingdom of God? Through many tribulations. Jesus himself in John 16.33, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Didn't Jesus warn us that we should count the cost before we follow him? Didn't he tell us very plainly that to be a disciple means carrying our cross? And if we are saved by a dying Christ, that following him and declaring this message about Christ means that we too are handed over to death for Jesus' sake. Now, what does it mean to be handed over to death? Well, it certainly means that we, we live with death in view, maybe far off, maybe soon, but we die. It means we suffer. It means that if you truly follow Christ, there will be some kind of cost, a relational cost, a monetary cost, some sort of cost for you to follow Christ. And if you look at your life as a Christian, you say, I don't know what the cost is. If that's you, that you feel like it costs you nothing, you need to think, am I really following him? Am I really following this man of sorrows, being more like Jesus? And that's what we want, right? I could ask you for a show of hands. I want to be more like Jesus. 
who would raise their hand? I think all of us would say we want to be more like Jesus. Philippians 3.10 says that part of being like Jesus is the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's like Jesus. Romans 8.16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So there's a lot of good news there. Children of God, you're children of God, heirs, adopted. You have an inheritance provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Suffering for Christ in your life. And I know you, you got to stretch your mind a little bit because nobody has thrown stones at us before, other than maybe when you were a kid, and that was more like pebbles than stones. But you need to suffer if you're truly heir to this king, this king who is hated and reviled. You're going to face some of the same hatred. It's a promise to you that you will face some of that hatred. You're going to face suffering because you belong to that king that suffering servant. So I don't like verse 11. It's hard to hear. I don't like the thought of living a life of dying. I don't like the promise of being handed over to death. But I like Jesus. And I think you like Jesus. And I'd like to be like him. And you like the word of God. And I like what results from this dying. And I trust See, that's what it's about, really. It's about trust. On a sermon about suffering, you think, I don't want to hear that because I'm, I'm suffering and it hurts. That might be in your place. You're suffering and it hurts. Or you know what? I don't want to suffer. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And when my time is to come and I'm, I'm going to get that phone call in the middle of the night or whatever it is that you're fearful about, whatever you're fearful about suffering, it's important that you have to trust that God is not handing us over to death just to toy with us for no purpose, just puppets, just to make us squirm like a little voodoo doll. It's not in vain. It's not without purpose. It's not without hope. And so I want to answer two questions this morning. Number one, how do we press on in the midst of suffering? How do we press on in the light of verse 11, which says we're handed over to death for Jesus' sake? How do you endure that? And then two, why? What's the purpose? What result comes from being handed over to Jesus? So question number one, how do we press on in the light of, of, in the, light of the reality of verse 11? So everybody suffers. Some people suffer more than others. I'm not pretending that it's all equal. Jesus said, you will, you will have trouble in this world. So when you have trouble, don't be surprised. Trouble seems surprising, even, even extra so to, to most Americans. Trouble. I'm American. I don't really understand trouble. I think that's true for a lot of us. And if you experience trouble, well, then just, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Um, in this, in, we, we live in a privileged country where we're able to work hard and see the benefits of that. And so sometimes in our um, blessing, in our wealth, we don't understand trouble like we should. Or when it hits us, we're very surprised by it. But you will have tri tribulations, so don't be alarmed. Don't feel like God is picking on you. Jesus promised it. So just to check, he promised that in this world we'd have it. Just to check, I'm still in the world. You're still in the world. You're going to have trouble. So the question is, how are we going to endure? How do you press on? 
Let me give you two answers to this question. Number one, we believe in the resurrection. You will not be able to endure suffering and being handed over to death unless you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and he's going to raise you. That's verse 13. Look at it. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. Paul is saying, um, look, you may be impressed with me. You may think it's just a royal shame uh, sorry, that you may, you may not be impressed with me. That's what Paul's saying. You may not be impressed with me. You, th- you may think it's a royal shame that a minister suffers, but I have the same spirit of faith as the prophets. And this quote is from Psalm 116. And these men of God spoke because they believed. He quotes that verse. And so I'm speaking. I believe. I have faith and my confidence for you and for me in the midst of suffering is this, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Now, you're going to see this later in 2 Corinthians. A firm confidence and longing for the afterlife is what keeps you enduring in this life. And some people just don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about it. Maybe they're scared to death. They don't want to start talking about heaven and hell because that's controversial. Let's just talk about what we're going to do in the next 30, 40 50 years. That's what really matters, right? That's the point. God just wants you to do some stuff here on earth. And there's some truth to that. It's true. God has a reason. I mean, there's a reason you don't just get beamed up to heaven when you become a Christian. He's got work for you to do. But at the same time, the New Testament teaches time and time again that we will not do anything of lasting value on the earth until we recognize that the earth is not lasting. Until you realize this, and that, that this life is not it, it's, it's not everything. There's something else after here. Your hardship is not going to make a real eternal difference unless you believe that a reward is coming. And don't hear reward as meaning an earning, something that you earn. Remember, think of it as inheritance. Verse 14 gives us the reward. That reward is that you will be in his presence. So in other words, life with God forever. That's what it's talking about. Eternal life is this, to know God and the, to know Jesus and the one who sent him. Eternal life is now, it's knowing Jesus. And it continues on. Don't think God is somewhere beyond motivating his people by a reward of himself. I was reading this book a couple of years ago in seminary, and it was just philosophizing and um, it was too smart for its own good. You know those books that are trying to be too smart for their own good? And sort of arguing that real faith comes on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. When you don't see that God benefits you all. You don't see that God benefits you at all. You don't see any hope. And that's where real faith is, when it's just desperate and there's nothing and there's no benefit to you. But that's not Christianity. That's not what this passage is saying. God is always saying, you store up treasures in heaven, treasures in jars of clay. He's always saying, look to this reward that's coming. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, one, but also that he rewards those who seek him. That's a definition of faith. Without faith, you cannot please God. And what's faith here? Two things. You believe that he exists, 
and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, every Christian agrees, well, yeah, of course. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that God exists. That's easy. That's elementary. But it also says you don't have faith if you don't believe that God is going to be of immeasurably good benefit to you, namely himself and his presence. In eternity, you must believe there is reward coming. How do you suffer well? How do you endure? There is reward coming for you. You will be raised from the dead. Your body, wherever, wherever it is, scattered to the winds and the ocean and the ground. God's going to get all those atoms. He's going to put them back together in some way. You're going to get a new body. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be different. But it's going to be you. And you're going to live forever with Jesus. It's because of that that Paul can say, press on. Press on because there's resurrection. If you had to fast for a day, it would not be hard to fast for a day if you knew that on the very next day and every day after, you could eat all the food you ever wanted. No cholesterol, no pounds, all the food, no taking insulin for me. All right, I'll give up. I won't eat today. It would be hard not for you to write a check if you were going to inherit $10 million the next day. Woohoo! A thousand for you! A thousand for you, a thousand for you, if you're going to inherit $10 million. But you have to believe that there's going to be a reward because the reality is that's true for us. You can live your life with full generosity because there's a reward coming to you in heaven. And the suffering you experience now, you can press on. The fasting today will lead to the food tomorrow. So we, ha- we need to believe in this resurrection and the reward and taste some of it. Some of it. It's not going to last, but heaven's going to last. And after 10,000 years in heaven, you'll just say, boy, that was just a little teeny sliver of my existence. That suffering was nothing. That little thing called earth. Second, talk about answering this first question. So one, you have to know that you have an inheritance. How do we press on? We believe in the resurrection. But second, we press on because God gives us sustaining power. That's the point of verse 7. We'll come back to verse 7 at the end. We have a surprising, or we have a surpassing power at work within us that's from God Almighty. It's a power to sustain you in suffering to keep you joyful, to keep you confident, to keep you firm in your faith, to keep you going even when you're handed over to death. So how does that all work? Well, it works because God gives power. That's verses 8 and 9. God's power at work in Paul's life. He's afflicted, not crushed. He's perplexed, not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, he's not destroyed. You see, there's four pairs there. The first half of each of those pairs is talking about what's going on to Paul, how he's suffering, how he's being handed over to death. And then the second part of of the pairs is describing how God is giving him surpassing power so that he can endure this daily dying to himself. Paul's hurt, but he's not giving up. He's disturbed, but not despairing. You might say he's stressed. You may be stressed, but he's not, he's not left God. He's been knocked down, but he's not knocked out because God has given him power. God has given him power. Now, do you ever look at verses like that, eight and nine, and you get kind of discouraged? I, I do. I could never be like Paul, right? He is some sort of Superman. 
I mean, I don't, I don't like when people give me a funny look or give me a limp handshake like they don't like me or something. And he's got people throwing big stones at him, trying to kill him. He's got people whipping him. He's got people seeking to kill him. He's being hunted. And I've been on a boat once that had a bunch of gadgets that told me where, like, oh, avoid that place because it's a little bit, you might run into a rock or something. He's, he's shipwrecked. Every other day, it seems like. It seems like Paul, I, I just don't understand it. He's some kind of super Christian. I can't do this. And if that's what you think, then you kind of get it. And I'll explain. You kind of get it. We should not see Paul and think, my, what a heroic, courageous person. If only I could have such courage. Paul was a cracked pot. He was a jar of clay. God gave him the surpassing power. So don't look at Paul in despair because you know what? I can never be like that and Paul could never be like that without God's power in him. The first stone comes whizzing by me and I'm out of there. Because that's not the point. Look at Paul and be encouraged because the same God that gave Paul power is your God. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead. He's our God. He sustained Paul and he can sustain you. It's not about Paul. In Paul's days, there were these people called cynics and stoics. And we use the word in English. A cynic is someone who's just pessimistic and always sees the glass half empty. With a stoic, we think of someone who's very calm and sort of boring. They're so stoic, no emotion. That's not exactly what they were in the first century. There are two, these two groups, two philosophies, sort of like we have Republicans and Democrats, Democrats but don't over, overanalyze that. Those are your cynics and stoics. They had a few things in common. One of them was that they liked to talk about suffering, and they actually had lists, a lot like Paul has in this passage. And it's kind of a badge of honor. Recount all your sufferings and how you made it. They talked about endurance and pressing on, just like Paul is here. Um, but Paul was not a cynic, and he wasn't a stoic. For starters, he did not advocate an indifference to suffering. That's really important. That was the Stoics. That's where we get this idea, you're a Stoic if you're placid and don't show any emotion. It's really that the Stoics didn't like emotion. It, or it's not really that the Stoics didn't like emotion. They did. They liked joy. You're supposed to be internally unaffected by the world around you. I had this famous line from one of their philosophers. If you ever see a man who is happy in the midst of suffering, if you ever see a man who is unaffected by life's tribulations, if ever you see a man who is steadfast no matter what, there you have a stoic. They practice an inward serenity, indifference to hardship. Stuff of life doesn't get to them. And if, if that strikes you as something that's Christianity, it's not. That's not Paul. Sometimes you think of the Christian life that way. That, well, that's what I got to be. I'm just internally serene. Nothing ever bothers me. And that's not Paul. He says, guys, I'm really perplexed. I'm kind of confused here. I'm struck down. I'm afflicted. I'm persecuted. He sees his suffering and he admits it and he's honest that he's going through these things. And you don't have to buckle up and just not show any emotion. Things are not going well for Paul. He feels pain. In chapter 2, he cries tears. He felt like giving up in chapter 1. I mean, read the Psalms. The Psalms are very honest about suffering. 
They, won't, they don't want us to be indifferent to it. But the Psalms tell us of hope. See, the biblical hope is not indifference to pain, but deliverance, either in this life or in the next life. But it doesn't mean you pretend pain isn't painful. It means you trust God to keep you going and to rescue you now or later. So he's not a stoic or a cynic. And the other difference between Paul and these rival groups is what suffering dis- what, is how he, he displayed suffering to others. See, the cynics and the stoics thought that endurance in the midst of hardship was principally a display of human courage. Look at him. Boy, he doesn't give up. Would you look at her, all that's happened, that inner strength and fortitude? They would have loved the Hallmark TV specials. Our culture loves stories of people who overcome adversity, who go from rags to riches against all odds, who press on in the midst of hardship. We love stories of underdogs and people who face struggles, and they persevere. And Paul liked those stories too. Those are good stories. But Paul saw them examples, not of human, not examples not of human courage and the triumph of the human spirit, but of God's power. So I like those movies too. I like Rocky. Rocky, the movie about this boxer from Philadelphia. I love Rocky IV, where he's running in six feet of snow, and he's doing chin-ups and pull-ups, hanging from the rafters in some little cabin, and he's lifting whole carts full of people and running around in a blizzard and drinking raw eggs. I love that. That's a great story. You get to the end of the movie, and it, it almost makes a grown man cry. If I can change, yous can change. We can all change. Rocky ended the Cold War, so I, I like the movie. And there's something good. There's something good. There's virtue there, courage, hard work, perseverance, determination. But just don't think that the Christian life is about you being Rocky, <laughs> about you overcoming adversity. You working your tail off, you being the best you can be, you displaying heroic courage. The Christian life is about God's power at work within you to do all these things. There is only one real hero, and his name is Jesus. There's one hero in our lives, it's Jesus. And if you don't get that, you're going to go through your life thinking that you've got to be the biggest and the strongest, and it's all up to you. And when When Paul's point is just the opposite, it's not about you. It's not about you. God's got power. God raises dead people to life. He can sustain you. So that was all question number one. Question number two, how do we press on? Question number two, or question number one, how do we press on? Question number two, what's the purpose? What are the results in being handed over to death? And there are three of them in this passage. Life in us life in others, and glory to God. So first, we are handed over to death so that life might be manifested in us. That's the point in the second half of verses 10 and 11. We are supposed to mirror Jesus because we have union with Christ. So we show forth the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the life of Jesus. What does it mean to have the life of Jesus displayed in your body? It's kind of a tricky words from Paul. It means, first of all, that you'll be raised on the last day. Jesus came back to life, you'll come back to life. It also means that in this life, so not on the last day, but in this life, you will be delivered and sustained in the midst of hardship in order for the fullness of Christ's life to be manifested in you. That's the point of both verse 10 and verse 11. There's some aspect of the life of Jesus. 
some part of Christ in you that can only be fulfilled, displayed with suffering. In a nutshell, that's one of the answers to why Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve fell. Why a fall? Why Adam and Eve? Why did God ordain a world that would break? Because there's something in God's character and his glory that can only be fully displayed in the midst of struggle. Something about his mercy, something about his power. It can only be seen in the midst of suffering. So if you and I never suffered, you know, because that sounds like a nice life, a life of no suffering, no splinters, no cranky kids, no aging parents. But if you never suffered, people would not be able to see the power of God in your life. They wouldn't see what Jesus' life was like. They wouldn't see how Jesus is more precious to you than life itself unless you're handed over to death. Jesus can't look unimaginably precious to you unless he's precious even as you're dying. So it sounds paradoxical, but those of you who have been around godly, suffering saints, you've seen this, that there's a kind of special vitality that can only be seen, or it can, it can be seen best in those who are dying, and they know that they're dying. And you see them, and you see in them an intimacy of fellowship with Jesus. You see that there is this sweetness of affection for their Lord. You see an abiding trust. And you go, why are you trusting? Everything in your life is going backwards. But they trust. You see in them the life of Jesus at work. I don't like suffering. I don't consider myself courageous, necessarily. I don't want to be handed over to death. <laughs> I think sometimes at night, Lord, there's a lot of bad things that could happen. But we need to trust that there is a depth of spiritual experience that can only be had in the valley of the shadow of death. So I don't say, Lord, let me just hurt. But I say, Lord, whatever you've got planned for me, if it's a valley and it's a shadow, I'm going to see something. I'm going to experience something clearer than I do right now, and that'll be good. And you don't have to take my word for it. There's a whole bunch of other people who could tell you that it's, that could, who could tell you that suffering with Jesus is better than I can from firsthand experience. Second, we're handed over to death. The result is life in us. And second, life in others. Verse 12 says that death is at work in you, but life at work in us. Uh, he says, but death, but death is at work in us, but life in you. We must be willing to suffer so that others can see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, we would like it if people can see Jesus in us and make people happy in Jesus at no cost to us. Isn't that what we're interested in? Lord, let me be as, as of much benefit to you at no possible cost to me. I'll sign up for that. Anybody would sign up for that. But that's not how it works. Death is at work in us so that life can be work at work in others. That means death at work in you as a minister to people. It means you risk embarrassment and you go ahead and you share the gospel. It means you risk your kids and you bless them and you send them to the mission field. It means you part with your money so that more laborers can be sent into the harvest. That's letting a little bit of death work in your life 
so that life may be at work in others. It also means trusting that there is a purpose in this pain. And part of the purpose is that people could see that God is precious to you. So it means you don't consider cancer or dementia or some freak accident or infertility to be just purposeless. But you consider it to be an opportunity to show in your flesh the life of Jesus as you are handed over to death so that Christ would look strong and precious in your life. So that spiritual life could be at work in others as they see what a God is sustaining you. Colossians 1.24. I don't know how many of you have ever noticed this verse. It's remarkable what Paul says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now that's remarkable. But this is remarkable. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Have you ever wondered what that verse means? Think about it. Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It almost sounds blasphemous. What could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, Paul's not saying there uh, that there's more work to do to atone for our sins. That's not what he's saying. And Jesus didn't quite get it done. No. He said it is finished. What Paul means, I think, is that there's an appointed allotment of suffering for the body of Christ. And we haven't filled it up yet. Just like in Revelation, we're waiting for the number of the martyrs to be brought to completion. That there's an elect number of people, maybe some in this room, who will give their lives for the sake of Christ. So we're the body of Christ, right? That's what the church is. Christ's physical body suffered for this body. That's what you have to look at. In some way, you suffer. You're making up what is lacking, what is yet to be fulfilled in the afflictions of Christ. So you need to see yourself with this radical kind of union in Jesus so that the arthritis you have is like another whip in Christ's back, bringing it to completion. The grief you feel is another thorn in his brow. The diagnosis you get from the doctor is another spear in his side. That Christ suffered for others, you suffer for others. Now hear me, not to atone for sins, It's not what I'm saying. It's not like that, but to lead people to Christ and his atonement. Your body suffers for this body. Well, how? Well, in the way that I've already explained, you suffer so that the church, all of us, can be strengthened. Don't think you're suffering in a corner. We're looking at you. We see your suffering. We're we're looking at you ready to give thanks to God. Look what God's doing in her life. Look at it. She's still going. She's got joy. She's not thrown in the towel. She's struck down, not destroyed. You see Christ's power in your weakness, Christ's comfort in your pain, Christ's life in your death. That's how death is at work in you, and it's life for everyone else. They marvel at it. And we should be a church who looks at each other's suffering and encourages one another and sees Christ giving us the strength to get through it and being encouraged by that. Which leads us to the last point. We are handed over to death for the glory of God. We see this at the beginning and end of this text, verse 7 and verse 15. We'll start with verse 15. Um, He talks about grace extending to more and more people. This happens in a number of ways. As you suffer, more people see God's power in your life, and the grace abounds as you suffer. To do ministry and share the gospel and lead a Bible study and disciple your kids as you suffer. 
more and more people get to hear about the grace of Christ. In either case, grace is extending to people seeing God's grace at work in you. People are coming to accept God's grace because of the message delivered through you. It's more and more people, some of them getting converted, some of them being strengthened in their faith, grace just rippling out. And wherever there's grace, there needs to be gratitude. Verse 15. The word for grace is charis. Uh, you can mock my pronunciation of that. I'll talk about it with Wilson later, but charis. And um, uh, the word for thanksgiving is eucharistia. So you can see the, the charis in the middle of that. Charis leads to eucharist. Grace leads to gratitude. People giving thanks to God. If there's no suffering in your life and in my life, if there's no hardship, no honesty about your failures, then there's no need for God to give you grace. And if people cannot see grace in your life, they will be missing out on the occasion to thank God because of you. Do people just go around, oh, thank God that this person's got everything all together. <laughs> I thank God for what you're doing. I don't know how they're making it right now, but God, you're showing yourself to be so strong and so tender and so good. It means gratitude to God for undeserved strength and favor and mercy. God gets more glory when he uses a bunch of nobodies and when he uses, than when he uses nobility. I don't know if this, if this is a good analogy. It made sense to me. The butterfly uh, would not be so special. Everyone loves butterflies. And some people release, oh, well, except maybe Seth Long. He's talked to me about this. But um, People even release butterflies at weddings. I don't know how they get them in the box. Uh, there's some science in that box. They're just ready to fly out when it's opened. Um, but butterfly, butterflies would not seem quite so amazing <laughs> if they came from eagles instead of caterpillars. You can't get a little crawly bug thing. Uh, you, can't, you can't make that into a, a, a beautiful flying butterfly. And if that was a baby eagle, you'd say, well, what did you expect? It's flying around. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Which brings us finally to verse 7. So the Corinthians were confused. They got Paul. He's not very impressive. He doesn't speak like they want him to. And he's kind of a crybaby. And he's hurt all the time. And yet he's talking about his ministry like it's the best thing since the law. It's better than the law. It's so much better. It's like the sun to a little flashlight. And so the question going on in their minds is this, how does unsurpassed glory harmonize with unrelenting death? It's not quite right, Paul. It's not what you expect. If you meet with a financial planner, you'll probably expect him to be dressed nicely, probably to have a suit or a tie, to look nice, to be clean-shaven, seem to have it all together. If your financial planner's got pockets out like this and is sort of disheveled, just bumming around, or just cut off um, and looks like it, he doesn't have two nickels to rub together. You're going to say thanks, but no thanks. I don't want you to be my financial advisor. And I'm not sure you really have what, what I'm looking for. And if you're looking for a personal trainer, you're not going to be impressed with a man who's 100 pounds overweight and has to stop to catch his breath walking up the stairs. You're going to say, that's not what I'm expecting. Somebody who's going to help me get in shape. And so the Corinthians were looking for somebody different than Paul. They didn't expect a message of transcendent glory to be delivered by so feeble 
an unimpressive man? How does such a treasure as the new covenant, as the glory of the gospel, of what the Israelites have been waiting years and years for, of peace on earth, of true deliverance from your sin, of a way to press on in the midst of struggle, how does that end up in a shoddy, crummy, uninspiring, pale bucket like the Apostle Paul? That's what they were thinking. And Paul says, you're right. You got it. That's the point. You're exactly right, Corinthians. We have a treasure in jars of clay. You've nailed it. I'm a clay pot. But what they didn't see was that this made the treasure shine more brightly because no one would mistake Paul's power to be his own. So often we are tempted to think, well, we want Christians or we want our ministers, we want them to be strong and professional and successful and have it all together. Let's show up a success for the world. Somebody's got a lot of money. This one's got a lot of degrees. Let's get a pastor who's relevant and hip and can relate to people and impressive. It's not how Paul cared to be seen. It's not how you should care to be seen because that's not how he saw himself. He saw himself as a jar of clay, a common pot, an ordinary thing, a pot that was cracked and blistered and beat up because God wanted everyone to see the Apostle Paul in wonder. How does a smashed up crumbly old jar, jar not fall apart? God didn't want people to marvel. Oh, look at that craftsmanship. Look at the beauty that is the Apostle Paul. He wanted everyone to marvel at how is that thing staying together in the midst of the tribulation. That's the point of verses 8 and 9. Struck down but not destroyed, persecuted, not abandoned. There's power at work in Paul to keep him going, to fight another day. And there's two different groups of people here. There are people here that think you're something special and people that think you need to be something special. Some of us think we're pretty special. Now, you've been around the church enough and you wouldn't raise your hand for that. If I asked, do you think you're special? No one would raise their hand. But I mean... You sort of carry it around with you. What I mean is you've always done well in school, some of you. It's been a breeze, um, 4.0. Or you've, you've always been popular. Or you've always been beautiful. Or you've always been the fastest or the strongest. Or even now, you're the one. You've got a bigger house. You've got more yard. You've got better vacations. Or you have impressive gifts, the kind that everybody notices. Maybe you have the audacity to go and talk for 45 minutes in front of a group, a group of people every week, like Wilson right there. <laughs> or so you think you're something. Well, let's be honest. Some people are prettier. Some people are smarter. I learned that playing football. I learned it playing basketball. There are people that are just better than me. I learned it playing with students. <laughs> some of my students are just better than me. Or some of them will say, you didn't pronounce that Greek word right. Or, you know, they, they know it. There are people who are smarter. And praise the Lord, Paul was smart. Praise the Lord, there are some rich people that give away a lot of money. But be careful. Oh, be careful. All you inf influential ones out there, all you popular ones, all the successful ones here, you're still a jar of clay. And whatever sort of gifts you have, you need to realize that that's treasure in a broken, busted up pot. That's, that's God that put it there. God can take it away. Not you, but at the treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know who you are. The beautiful ones, the intelligent ones, the degreed ones, the gifted ones. You need to ask, do you live and speak and feel in a such way that is obvious 
that the real power in your life is not yours but belongs to God? Do you live that way? Do you show that by a humble, broken-hearted, prayerful dependency on God? Prayer is one of the great indicators that you know you're a jar of clay. How much do you pray? So that's some of you. But there's others. You don't think you're special at all, but you'd like to be. You think you need to be. Maybe because you compare yourself with others, which is always a dead-end exercise because somebody's always better. You're discouraged. Somebody's worse. You feel proud. Maybe you want to be up front. You want to be noticed. Or maybe it's real humility. You really think, I just, I just don't do anything. I don't have those gifts. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I've got a face for radio. <laughs> I'm not the best-looking person in the world. Think about it. But that's all right. In fact, it's more than all right. If you feel amazingly ordinary and regular and on your best day, inching up to average, I've got good news for you. It's really easy for God to get glory with you. He loves to get glory with clay pots. And the more ordinary you are, the more God gives glory. The more weakness, the more obvious will be, put, will be God's strength. The less likely you are to su- succeed, the more credit God, gives for, God gets for the, excess, the success. I doubt any of your high schools have... Um, I doubt any of your high schools have on record your successes. And, and, and you who feel this way, you think, I never, I never amounted to anything. Think of the superlatives in high school that you have. Most likely to do this, most likely to do that. And you didn't get one. You come off as least likely to succeed. And God gets glory through you being a jar of clay. And that means... All of us must adopt an attitude of ordinariness. I don't know if that's a word, ordinariness. So um, don't believe that graduation speech that some of you are going to hear. Um, You are not the best graduating class class ever. (laughs) They said that last year. You're not the most special person in the world. You're not the last great hope of planet Earth. We are expendable. And that's the point of this metaphor. Paul didn't say... I'm a Grecian urn. I'm a priceless goblet. I'm a fine piece of crystal. He said, I'm a jar of clay. He said, he's Tupperware. You know, international, like like this plastic. This is plastic. I was going to say cheap, but it's probably expensive. Tupperware is probably too expensive. I don't know. Um, But but it's, it's plastic. It's what you put your leftovers in. You don't get Tupperware out to make a special statement or a social statement. Wow, look at her Tupperware. You get it because it's useful. It's expendable. You go to a fancy restaurant, and you've got this big plate and these big portions, and it's fine. It's a fine-looking piece of pottery. And they've got some urban-crusted chicken and some little glaze all drizzled around and some little garnishings. And you're like, oh, it's just a presentation. Um, but when you get Tupperware, it's, mac- it's, it's macaroni, and you pull it off, and the macaroni is like all stuck to the lid. And you know what? When you go to the restaurant, and you get that thing, and then you stick it in Tupperware. It's just as useful. It's just as tasteful. You'll eat it in a week, and no one cares about the presentation. When you put stuff in Tupperware, it's like, it's like dad's been in charge for a week as opposed to mom being there. 
Um, but I mean, moms are amazing. I've had, I've had times like this. But if you've ever taken care of kids by yourself, it's like by the second meal, and it's just, why don't we just eat over the carpet so I can just vacuum up everything as, as they drop it on the floor? I, I don't need to sweep anymore. Or you're like, why don't we just eat, eat from paper plates? I don't need to do the dishes anymore um, because I don't want to clean the table. I don't want to sweep. Let's just eat right out of the bag. Let's just go out to eat and eat right out of the bag, and then we can just throw everything away. But you see, that's not the point. We're not fine china. We're not fancy plates that you put in and you never use and you take out once a year. We're not fine. We're not china that's meant to dazzle and impress people. We are paper plates, expendable, cheap, but useful. You get food on that plate, and everybody, when you get a meal on a paper plate, nobody thinks that the plate plate is the point. We're not the point. You and I are not porcelain vases that get... To, uh, that get put on the mantle for display. We're to be well-worn, well-used, busted up, well-loved, rusty, duct-taped, old buckets. But we've got treasure. And hear this. That's what you are, but we have treasure. We have the gospel. We know Jesus. We've been forgiven. We've seen the glory of God through his word We're fragile, we're ordinary, we're expendable, and that's the way God likes it. So don't mind a little ordinary. Don't fret over suffering. Don't worry about being handed over to death. Every bit of weakness in your life is a new opportunity for God to look strong, for God to paint over the the canvas of your life a portrait of his power and his glory for everyone else to see. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, though we suffer, you would sustain us. Though we uh, experience tribulation in this life, it would be your power and your glory that helps us to press on. Help us to see your glory as we behold the face of Jesus. Help us to see it so that we can go out from here and press on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.